one, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? Can I tell you a real story before we jump into ethics? Yeah. All right. So it's a story from sections. So after we, after I, I became very angry in our conversation that we had yesterday, right? I I went to sections, the discussion sections. So I had three discussion sections for my spiritual but not religious class. And now remember, I hate this class. I do not like this class. I think the material is very stupid. Always good. Always good. But my students this semester are really great. Like my three discussion sections are wonderful. They're lovely, you know, and, and they're very thoughtful often. And sure, they they like this stuff more than I think they should, but uh, it's fine. Um, but I show up, I have a pretty good rapport with them all. And so I show up and I'm like, I just want you all to know that I'm cranky today. And my plan is to make your lives more difficult. And, and they were like, what? And they were laughing. And I'm like, I'm like, difficulty is good, guys. If, if I notice that you guys are talking and you all start going, oh, you're just so right. Everybody's so right. And you're so smart. And you're just the prettiest. And you're great. <laughs> I, I will begin to make it all extremely difficult for you. And so if you make it difficult for yourselves, then I don't have to make it difficult for you. And they were like, okay, fine. And so we started talking and the two things we talked about in all three of my sections, because these are the two things for the week, were the spiritualist movement, mm -hmm. like mediums and stuff from like the early 19th century and uh, new thought. So uh, Ralph Waldo Trine and um, uh, uh, like the power of positive thinking and, and, Mary, and, and, and that stuff like Christian science and how you can, you can think away disease and, and stuff like that. Like and, the source and all that, that, yeah, no, that, yeah. that stuff. Yeah. 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 And trying's trying's all about it. Trying's like, you know, you are a soul, not a body. Bodies are fucking stupid. We all know that nobody's ever liked a body, you know, and that's why we can, we can power of positive think our way by connecting to the infinite source known as God, uh, all disease. And, and we chatted about that and, and we were like, yeah, you know, like on one hand, we, we do know that, that right attitudes um, do seem to contribute to lots of different kinds of healing, right? Like lots of different sure. kinds of, you know, that's not, that's all fine, but you know, we're all talking and, and, and all of my sections kind of go this way, right? Like, like there's some really smart folks who, you know, they're all smart. I shouldn't say there's only some, uh, but, but they're talkative folks who are, who are like, you know, I really like this, or, you know, I don't know if this, this really works with some other things or, you know, I'm not sure about this. And, and it was good. And I talked for a few times, but then we sort of get to the end and we get to like, and each of my sections, this went this way. Like we get to like new thought and in general, different people have some issues with it, especially after I like, you know, poke at it a little bit, but, but basically everybody, every, you know, UVA undergrad already does this, right. You know, basically everybody's like, I think it's probably good. Hmm. And, and I'm like, okay. And so, you know, we had like 10 minutes left of the section. I did this with all three of my sections and I was like, I was like, so, because they, they're predictable. And I'm like, so like, is, is what's good for somebody good for everybody? And, and they're like, you know, they thought about it for a while. And a lot of them, you know, were just like, well, maybe not always, but if something positive happens to somebody, I mean, that's good, you know, right? And I, and so I told, I, after that, I told them two stories I, or I gave them two scenarios. And I, I was like, let's say, let's say that you are a farmer in Virginia in 1840 and you spent the last three months praying fervently to God or, you know, fuck it, manifesting, right? Like, like doing what Ralph Waldo Trine wants you to do, pow, you know, positive think your way into a better life, right? Like, let's say you were doing that for three months. 
and, and the reason is because you are struggling to maintain your farm. Your farm is going to fall apart. And with it, you know, your, your livelihood and your family's livelihood, you, you need an intervention. You need help. And so you've been doing that for three months. And then after three months of praying and, you know, new thoughting your way, you know, through it and reorienting yourself. Hallelujah. The slave ship arrives. It's like you're trolling, but you're not trolling. I, I know, I know. Now I have a couple of students of color in all of my sections. And uh, for the most part, you know, they, like, like as I was telling this, they were similar to all of the students, like like various shades of taking notes or or you know not really looking at me while they're thinking or not looking at me and not thinking about you you know like everybody's everybody's it's a mixed bag. Um, but in my second section, there's one black student, and she started smirking the moment I said "farmer in Virginia in 1840." Of course, she, she knew exactly where this was going. She was like, she was like, mm-hmm, yep. And I was like, hallelujah, the slave ship arrives. God has provided the infinite source of goodness, has answered your your plea. You have power of positive thought your way into prosperity. You finally own a slave. (laughs) (laughs) That that can help you. That can save your farm. And uh, and I'm like looking at everybody and I'm like, is is good for one person good for everybody? Uh, because remember, like like and we talked about this in the class. But remember, like the spiritual but not religious movement. Part of the reason why we can read these texts and say that they're foundational to what's ultimately a contemporary movement is because of things like individuality, right? right. Like the spiritual but not religious movement is an inherently individualistic movement. Like it's it doesn't have a concept of the common good because, exactly. because that would, that would be imposing a worldview onto that, onto other people, right? Like that would be, that would be sacrificing your own personal connection, you know, in favor of this common humanity that let's be real, you know, a, it's probably that not everybody is as special as you and B, you know, it would be wrong. That's what religions do. Religions proselytize, and try to get us all under this common humanity rubric. That's why they're inherently authoritarian. But spirituality is good because it's it's um, you know it doesn't impose anything on other people. This is what the students are saying, right? That, and that's exactly the popular framing of it. I mean, that's yeah. that's why spiritual but not religious is so frustrating because it's like, well, I'll just make the best decision for myself, and that's how you throw every impoverished person under the bus, you know. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And so I, I told them that, and nobody had a comment. Their eyes were very big, but nobody had a comment. And I was like, let me tell you one last thing. And I told this to everybody. I was like, has anybody ever heard of the person Norman Vincent Peale? And they're like, no. And I'm like, Norman Vincent Peale was this like, you know, pastor in New York in the 20th century. He was a public speaker and a lecturer, and he wrote a lot of books. And his church was extremely popular and, and like, you know, he, he won the presidential medal of, of freedom for uh, his work in theology, which is true. Like, like he, you know, he, he, he did all this great stuff. And, and I was like, chances are, if you guys have surviving grandparents who are religious, you could probably go to their house and you could probably find Norman Vincent Peale's most popular book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Right. You probably find that book. It was that popular. And I was like, and there was a guy who um, would invite Norman Vincent Peale to all of these events, like was like basically his sponsor, you know, one of his sponsors and would invite him to his businesses to do talks or invite him, you know, to, to clubs or to other places that he was involved in to like do this stuff. And and this guy was, this guy went to Norman Vincent Peale's church. Like this guy, you know, 
really liked him and 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 thought he was a good person and and was like Norman Vincent Peale is my pastor. And this guy's name is Donald Trump. <laughs> is that true? That's 100% true. Wow, I fully believe it. Of course. Of yeah. course. And, and Norman Vincent Peale officiated Trump's first two weddings. Holy he, shit. He officiated uh, two of Trump's sister's weddings. He, the entire Trump family has a, had attended his church since Trump was a little boy. Oh, and also the guy who gave Norman Vincent Peale the Presidential Medal of Freedom for his work in theology was Richard Nixon, who was, <laughs> who was another admirer of, of Norman Vincent Peale. And, and – they're they're shocked by it. and you know and I explain like Norman Vincent Peale is is like this new thought guy like like he's this Christian pastor but he's essentially doing this new thought manifesting power of positive thinking thing and um, and I said you know I don't think it's that controversial to interpret Donald Trump's entire life as an example of a practice in positive thinking. hundred percent. hundred percent. Oh my gosh. The pieces are coming together. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, like he's I was not like, a Presbyterian. He's a power of positive thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm like, I'm like, just think about it guys. He's, he's manifesting the life he wants. He's, you know, following Norman Vincent Peale's advice. He's basically like refusing to, to have a negative thought about himself or about his his purposes or about the world around him. And and he's does that and he manages to do that all the way through his businesses and all the way into becoming the president of the United States. Man. And, and I was like, is one person's good good for everybody else? And then and then I dismissed them. Um, cause I'm, you know, I, I'm a dramatic weirdo, but like, but like, I, I, I'm like, yeah, like I basically, I, I find both of those scenarios really fascinating, you know, to, to pose to them because it's, it's such a, so many of them, just about all of them were like, what can possibly be bad about having positive thoughts for yourself? Right. You know, and, and I'm like, I'm like, let me tell you why it's bad. It's because sometimes it's a lie. Mm. And sometimes it's it's just selfishness. That's all what it is. Sometimes you and I do shit that we should be held accounted to, and that is bad. And no amount of positive thinking will fix it. We just need to fix it. And so if you just are like, I'm only going to pursue my good from here on out, you are bound to rob other people. Yeah. Right. There, there's no way around it. Um, but I, I, in my third section, there's this stoner weirdo who, who is very smart, but is very silly. And I finished the Donald Trump thing and, and they were quiet for a second and just like, I'll be real with you. That is a ripping fucking hot take, Ethan. Yeah. Like, <laughs> holy fuck. You know, I just, I'm, my mind is blown right now. <laughs> like, thanks. <laughs> Would anyway, really those, enjoy those, the podcast while high. <laughs> right, I agree. I agree. But yeah, isn't that isn't that wild? I heard I I learned that from Dr. Headstrom, who's who's teaching the class. He was like, Oh yeah, Norman Vincent Peale. I mean, well, Norman Vincent Peale was Donald Trump's pastor. And I'm and I and I'm like, What? <laughs> what? Yeah. And and I'm just staring at him and I was like, Holy shit, it's all rigged all the way down. Like, like this is like, like Dr. Hedstrom, you just blew this shit wide open. There's no, this is all a grift. Mm-hmm. The power of positive thinking is all a grift all the way down. And Dr. Hedstrom's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah, usually the example you go for is like, 
cancer, right? Like, can you power the positive thinking through uh, like stage four metastatic breast cancer, for example? And the answer is no. The answer is like, obviously, no, obviously, like you need a doctor, etc. Mm-hmm. But but also for some people it's not very obvious. Um, but yeah, no, you bring in <laughs> you bring in this and it's like, oh I see. Oh I see. It's not just the illnesses. It's um boy, the rights of many Americans mm-hmm. all tied up together and one grifter. I love it. I hate it. Yay. Um, I think this is great to leave in because I think it goes directly into the ethics question. Perfect. So listeners, Ethan and I were talking about various other scenarios earlier this week. And I realized that like, I don't know what it means to do ethics. I, I like I'm thinking about a comment that came up in the conversation and like language that was used. Like a there to me, I think there is a hidden ethical structure that I am not privy to because I never took ethics 101. And so I'm hoping that you think can kind of explain to us how one quote unquote does ethics. Though I think maybe your answer is going to be that question doesn't make sense. Hmm. But I think maybe an example, I think you've just demonstrated how you do ethics or, or a way in which we think ethically. But the con- concrete example I came up with, uh, I had a congregant who had a queer family member, queer younger family member, who uh, this congregant came up to me and was like, do gay people go to hell? And it wasn't a like, I think gay people should go to hell kind of thing. It was a like, I've been taught that that is the case. But like in the face of the evidence of this person that I love, I really need to rethink this. And Mm -hmm. I don't know how to do it. And the congregant specifically said, I don't know how to think about this ethically. Mm -hmm. And I walked this congregant through like, well... A lot of times when we say gay people go to hell, people say that they're citing the Bible. So like, let's talk through the clobber verses. Let's talk through like what hell looks like and what we think about hell. And then at the end, I was like, honestly, like I, that's not how I understand God. That's not how I understand all of this. I don't think your gay family member is going to hell. And the congregant was really thankful to kind of just have an, an one authority figure. That's what killed me about it. To have one authority figure who was like, no, I don't think gay kids are going to hell. And, and that was enough for this congregant to be like, okay, cool. It's safe for me to believe this. It's mm-hmm. maybe ethical for me to believe this. And I... I don't I don't think that I did quote unquote ethics. I think I did theology and pastoral care in that situation. But like I would have no idea how to present a a ethical framework. Mm. Mm-hmm. So from all of that, Ethan, how do you do ethics? <laughs> so I'm not an ethicist. So we'll start with that. Sure. Um, and so to everything, all of my musings, listeners and the world and Joe take with a grain of salt. Um, it seems to me that like ethics is really about trying to figure out what is good and how to achieve it. Okay. Right. And so ethics, uh, uh, yeah, how to achieve it is a part of, you know, how we act. Right. So, so it's all kind of, it's connected in that way. Is there theoretical ethics versus applied ethics? I mean, I think all like ethical systems are theoretical, you know, at the beginning. Right. So like, if I was cheaty from the good place, I would babble constantly about Immanuel Kant, who nobody should listen to when it comes to ethics, even though he creates like a full ethical system. I just don't like Kant's ethics. But like, uh, so before I like even mention that as a, as a thing, like ethics are like everything, you know, are there are traditions of ethics, right? There are traditions of ethical frameworks or traditions of ways we can think about ethics and how how ethical systems, um, how they locate what is good and then how they uh, help us pursue what is good, right? Okay. And so there's not really like a universal like ethic, right? You right. Know, if, if that's, and I don't think that's what you're looking for, but if like, if somebody were to be looking for that, they would be, that was just not happening. 
So like if you were Immanuel Kant, you would say a couple of things. You would say that people are ends in and of themselves. And yes. and what that means, that's a good thing. What that means okay. is what for, for Kant is if we were to treat people as a means to an end. Oh, 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 I see what you mean now. I yeah, have yeah. transposed those words. Okay. Yeah, yeah. If 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 we were to treat people as a means to an end rather than ends in and of themselves, we would be behaving very badly because people should be regarded, according to Immanuel Kant, as ends. In other words, um, why shouldn't we kill? Well, Kant believed in God in his way. So there, there's some moral law stuff there that Kant definitely believed in and, and was all about. But like, it could pretty much be reduced to Kant would say, we shouldn't kill because um, being a person is a properly good end. Like okay. you don't, you don't need to have, Kant would say, you don't necessarily need to have a higher end than that. You can, there are, there might be like very high ends, like universal, you know, brother and sisterhood for the whole human race or, um, uh, 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 um, making our society more just, like those can be very high ends that are very good. But Kant was not a um, a utilitarian. Kant didn't believe that the best course of action was to maximize the most good for the most amount of people. Kant Kant believed that um, it was good enough that individual people living their lives for themselves like living their lives in the way that they felt was good uh, is a good enough end for us to respect. Hmm. Um, and there's good and bad things about this, right? Like on one hand, this um, uh, could easily be translated into the power of positive thinking, <laughs> right? Well, yeah, the way right? you framed it just there, exactly. Uh -huh. But on the other hand, it can also be translated into it would be incredibly wrong to enslave people. Sure because that would be reducing a person to a tool or to a means. And, and really people are meant to be treated as ends in and of themselves. And so we cannot, you know, it would be wrong to do that. But Kant calls his ethical system deontology. Right. Yeah. I've heard that word. I don't know that I know what that means. Like I could guess from the structure of the word, but it sounds confusing. Uh, yeah, so I don't really know the etymology of the word. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try and uh, uh, butcher that. But basically, Kant believed in duty, um, and Sorry. and no, duty like shit, <laughs> <laughs> like like scat. Um, no, honestly, it's just a funny word. I think we should all be given permission, like pause for laughter every time you say it, and then move on. Like that's how we handle this as adults, anyway. That's exactly right. Um, and for Kant, that meant that, um, you know, ethics can be reduced to uh, 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 fulfilling one's duty, one's duty to themselves, uh, one's duty to their family, to their country, to their religion, to, you know, all kinds of things. Um, and, uh, and, and for Kant, that means like, not not simply following the rules that would not that's not exactly right but but it means making sure that your responsibilities are met which can include following the rules and often does include following the rules of these particular of the particular you know things that you are meshed in but it's so like what is my duty to my family well Kant might say that your duty to your family is to uh, make sure, and this this isn't necessarily like a man or woman thing. Kant, Kant was a sexist because he was an 18th century guy, but like this doesn't have to be a sexist thing, right? Like mm -hmm. it, it just means that, well, one of your duties to your family is making sure that your family is safe. And so one way you can do that by fulfilling your duty is to, uh, there's a lot of ways one can act to fulfill the duty of making sure their family is safe. Some ways are worse than others, but but there are a number of ways. Um, making sure that there are fire detectors that are working in your house or smoke detectors that are working in your house 
is a fulfillment of your duty, making sure that you um, are making the money you need, making sure that you are, I don't know, this sounds mundane, but it would work, making sure that you are cleaning the house, making sure, sure that you're playing with your children, making sure that you're, I don't know, well, any kind of thing can be the fulfillment of that duty. Right. It's a rather it's a rather broad system. Now, there might be more specific duties. And Kant would say part of what the sort of transcendental moral law is. And and here Kant would would appeal to God in some way is is sort of sort of like universal duties to the human race. Hmm. Right. Like do not kill. Right. But like Chidi is a Kantian in the good place. And and often talks about duty for himself. Whenever Chidi talks about his own ethical action, not when he's teaching everybody about lots of different ethical systems, but when Chidi talks about his own ethical action, he frames it as a Kantian. Okay. His duty to Eleanor when Eleanor meets him after they're sort of given their lives back, like in the in the on planet Earth is to teach her ethics because Chidi is an ethics professor. Mm-hmm. And, and that his, comes along with obligations. That yeah. comes along with obligations. It's his duty. Um, I find this to be um, uh, uh, not a great ethical system, but I also find, but, but at my most like, you know, when I'm in my best mood, I, what I appreciate about it is it is. It does not have to correspond with uh, your feelings. Hmm. Um, Kant uh, mistrusted some of that stuff and actually felt like things like passions and emotions and stuff maybe get in the way of a good life sometimes. And so, uh, and so, if some if we were to understand ethical action in the world as following our duty some of the burden of making sure our inward emotive life is oriented towards those that we have duty towards um some of that burden is lifted like we don't we don't have to do that we don't have to be happy about it we don't have to feel good about it we don't have to be on all the time right instead we instead we can trust that we can behave ethically if we remind ourselves that really we just need to follow our duty hmm. to each other. I, like I said, I, I'm not convinced by that, but I do see something um, good in that, right? Like I do see something um, at least helpful, you know, if, if your duty as a pastor means that I have to, you know, provide care for my congregants, even the ones I don't like, it removes the do it removes the burden of forcing yourself to like congregants that you don't like. Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and Kant would say, yeah, that's, that, that's important because Kant sees ethics as, uh, as primarily about like the inward side of ethics is making sure that you are obeying that that call that duty has on your life but the outward side of side of ethics is far more important for Kant and and far more necessary and duty is able to preserve that even when the human being is too weak to preserve it emotively hmm this is this is fascinating to me because it is like a cheat code into my brain and I imagine into the brains of many Americans because of the way that the military uses this, I think. Yes, I, I think so too. I think so too. Now, this isn't a terribly critical ethic, right? Like, like Khan is not a dummy. He's boring, but he's not a dummy. And I haven't read all the material. So I'm I'm going to guess. This is a pure guess that Kant spends time talking about what happens when like duties are in conflict. Right. Mm. And, and, and I imagine that Kant get, and other Kantians guide us or can guide us into navigating what kind of duty we must be obedient to when they're in conflict. Um, 
obviously can't believe that the universal moral law is binding on everybody mm-hmm. and and has precedent we might say so like Kant might say that of course you have a duty to your country but if he might say this i assume he says this this is a guess but um perhaps if what your country wants you to do is in violation of the universal moral law you have a duty to that first simply by being a human being and so maybe that's one way you know it, it can be sort of a critical ethic right like an ethic that really attempts to navigate you know the difficult things rather than um just kind of give you a a thing to obey and fall in line with. Right. Um, and Chidi works through that a little bit too. Like Chidi feels the tension of, I have this duty as a moral philosopher and a moral, and a, a moral, uh, a teacher of moral philosophy to teach people. But, you know, Chidi falls in love as well. And, and now he has other kinds of duties, he has duties to Eleanor, or he has duties to, I can't think of her name, One of the, the colleague that he has that he starts seeing for a little while. In uh, Yeah, the, I don't know her name either, season. but yeah. Um, and, and suddenly now there are sort of conflicting duties, right? Where then Chidi, that's part of Chidi's, you know, tension as he has to sort of navigate that and, and figure that out. But, the, but if Chidi were to ever throw out, you know, that, like if Chidi ever stopped caring about you know, his Kantian deontological ethic, that would be an end to like Chidi's character. Right. Mm. And, and, and he does that a little bit. Like there's a moment, I think in the second to last season where he's like, he's like, ah, fuck it. You know, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be doing this anymore. And that like really wrecks Eleanor. And, and it's, and it's kind of scary for a little while. Um, but yeah, so like that would be like an example. I talked a lot there, but that would be like an example of like the way an ethical system thinks about like, okay, what is good and how do we achieve good? Well, what is good? Well, one of the things that's good, you know, Kant might say is it is good for things to be peaceful. It, order is good, right? Hmm. Because order um, uh, um, um makes us uh, brings us at peace and and for Kant morality is the highest form of order. Ah, uh, okay. You see what I mean? Now I might disagree with that point, but but morality is the highest form of order. It it produces good because it produces order. It also unites the mind because Kant's a, an idealist and so he, he believes that the only things that we can prove to be real are things that happen in our minds. That the material world is is uh, received by our minds, and so we don't really have access to the to the bare material world. We only have access to the way our minds receive that material world. And morality does this really incredible thing, where it it unites all of the dis- disparate parts of our mind. You know, duty is a you're able to take every kind, all the multitudes of the human mind, and if you say all of these multitudes are fine, but if they serve duty, then they'll be united. You know, you'll be at peace, right? You know, and, and you'll be able to live lives that are um, good and peaceful and clear and orderly while producing real good. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, uh, and let me let me sum up and you tell me if I'm wrong. So an ethical system like Kant's system gives you this kind of framework for your day-to-day decisions that like you, it gives you a goal that you're striving towards, uh, an ethical goal that you're striving towards. And that is the answer to like, what is the good life? So the good life is to achieve this, whatever the ethical goal is that the system sets before you. And the system also gives you ways to answer questions about uh, things that come up that that aren't already kind of obvious answers. 
And so if you were to do ethics, like if you were to think ethically, quote unquote, if you would, if you, if you're doing ethics, the idea is that when people say that, what they mean is they want an ethical system that they're going to input their problem that will output a decision. Yeah. I think a lot of people's relationships to ethical systems is just like that. Exactly how you described it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And not every ethical system does that. So like a virtue ethics, that's not so clear cut, Mm -hmm. right? We've talked about virtue ethics a few times, you know, on the podcast, like virtue ethics works under the assumption that there, that there is no way to like systematize human action in the world, but there might be a way of crafting moral humans Mm. who work um, who work with the kind of very complicated realities of the world, right? And so like a virtue ethics would say, okay, we can't give you a deontological system of duty to help you do stuff. It's, in some ways, it's the opposite of Kant. Virtue ethics is in some ways the opposite of Kant because virtue ethics wants to say it, it's actually about training the human to hmm. be to, in, in, in their inward life to be um, so that they can produce certain kinds of good in their outward life. Whereas Kant says, mm, the real thing that makes the inward life work is if we are ready to be obedient to our duty. We don't have to have a, a an inward life that is more than that. We do. Like Kant's like, of course we do. But like for ethics, we don't have to have more than that. Like it does not – in some ways, um, the conversation we had surrounding activist uh, theology mm. uh, with Dr. Roberta Espinoza. Did I say that right? Roberto, yeah. Roberto. I'm so sorry. In some ways, that – in some ways, that is a kind of Kantian approach. Like, hmm. or, when, or when Ian poses the, the thought experiment of if what if somebody's practice is good but their inward life is not? Ian is in some ways – invoking a Kantian perspective hmm. where, where they say, you know, what if the duty of, of a human being is to um, make sure all people are equal under the law, truly equal, regardless of how they personally feel about them. Like a judge is able to be a judge, no matter how fucking racist a judge might be. We're fine with it as long as they do their duty. Yeah. What? So why is Kant this like cheat code for the U.S. mindset and our like basic ethical principles? Is it just because all this comes out of the Enlightenment and Kant is feeding the Enlightenment? Like, do you, that? I'd that not be a question that you know the answer to. But like, this really, this framework really sounds like my underlying ethical framework that I didn't even know I had. Kant is a founding philosopher of liberal democracy perfect okay and so and so that's part of it the other part is the enlightenment that's definitely true but the other part is like kant's kant's impact on like say protestant theology after kant is enormous like like kant has an impact all the way up until bart like like even maybe not with deontology but like with all this other stuff right like Bart is working with Kant's epistemology, you know, like Bart pushes yeah. at it, but like, that's one of the things that I, um, uh, frustrate my advisor over where I'm like, why does Paul, Paul, why does Bart seem to give a shit about Kant's epistemology? Who cares? You know, why does he worry about that? There's so many other things he can worry about. Why, why is Kant, why does Kant have such a, a hold on him in this one area? And it's really just because, Kant, Kant has a hold on everybody for a really long time. Hmm. You know? um, Kant's entire, think of it this way. I, I don't mean to make this about Kant. So like Kant's whole thing about idealism and about how we really only have access to, to the way in which our minds receive reality and we don't really have access to, to reality as such. That is an entire um, uh, uh, epistemology that is rooted in the Protestant idea of faith. Ah, okay, okay. Do you see Same. why? I I think I do. Say more. So, like, 
if we do not have the knowledge to know objective reality, the only real relationship we can have with objective reality is a relationship of faith. Dang it. That is the conclusion I have come to and something that I think. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's true too, because like there, Kant, Kant didn't invent that whole idea, but like Kant's right. epistemology is rooted in that, right? Like it's rooted in this, in this Protestant notion of faith. Um, others have come too, and there are like radical and critical reads of all of that, right? Like Caputo is like that. Caputo is not a Kantian, but like, but like Caputo has come to similar conclusions, just not with the idealism, right? Just not with the the whole world is only in our minds sort of a thing. Um, uh, but like that's, and, and so right away we can easily see why say like Protestants after the enlightenment see in Kant a way forward. Like, yeah. oh, okay, we can, we can do something with that, right? Like we can, we can do something with that because Kant has disproved, because Kant disproves all of the proofs for God in many of his critiques. Like, Kant's like, there's no way we can prove that God exists. I'll show you. And he works through like five different ancient and medieval proofs for the existence of God. And he demonstrates how they, how they fail. And then he basically says, yeah, it's just faith guys. It's yeah. just faith all the way down. That's all we got, you know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, like I, that, that's an interesting way in which Kant kind of fits into all of, to both liberal democracy and secularism, and then 19th, 18th and 19th century into the 20th century Protestant theology, right? Like Kant's kind of at the epicenter of all of that. But yeah, I think that's why, I think that's why like Kant's ethics um, sort of lives in the American psyche a lot, because a, a lot of it is sort of based off of that. The real question is, is Kant right? Like, is it possible to have an inner life that is sort of not really congruent with your duty? And certain certain folks would say no, like me, <laughs> right? Like, I don't think I have to love the people that I am kind to, but that's, and I think that there's a certain amount of duty that's there, but like, I do have to have, I cannot hate them. Right. You know you can't what I mean? Have disdain for them. Yeah, I can't have disdain for them, and so my inner life has has to be more moral and complex than maybe Kant thinks it has to be, in order to do it. Also, Kant never left his hometown. Sure. So like, so like Kant, and Kant was a hella racist. You know, he was a big racist. <laughs> so, so like, there's a, there's there's lots of things there, but like that would be an example. But yeah, that would be an example of like how we might think ethically using a system. And that's why I say, remember, it matters what system we're talking about, because there is no universal, how do I think ethically? You have to sort of begin with ethical traditions that guide us into thinking ethically. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense to me. I think that, that honestly, I know you didn't want to make it about Kant, but I think that makes the what you have said answered a lot of questions that I think would have come up over the course of the conversation anyway. Cool. And and obviously there's not one Christian ethic, right? Um, so if somebody is like, oh well, I want to think about this as a Christian and ethically, you still have a ton of choices. Yeah. So how do we how do you help a congregant? Specifically, the congregant has come up to you and said, I have an ethical dilemma and I want a solution for it. How do you help them think ethically in that mm -hmm. case? So I think that if it's a if it's a problem or, or if it's a, a dilemma like how you've described, mm -hmm. that that is primarily I interpret that as a theological dilemma. And I think you did as well. Yeah. Um, because there is no way we can ethic our way into saving somebody from hell. Right? Like hell right. is outside hell is actually outside of our control in, in a in in a really important way, right? Like, yes, if we're if we believe in hell and we're we're Wesleyans, you know, like like John Wesley both believed in hell and, you know, also as this you know 
believed that if you went to hell, it was because you put yourself there you right. know, through your action or inaction or disbelief or, or whatever. And so like there's a sense in which hell is within our control, but only in a very limited sense because we did not make the rules and um, and I cannot force somebody to do what I want them to do, you know, and so. So I interpret that scenario you brought forward as a, as a theological scenario. And so if it was something like that, I would want to help a congregant think about what their commitments are as a Christian mm. first. That's where I'd begin. I'd be like, well, what do you think is true about your faith and about God and about the way all of this works? Not, not give me the answer. Just what do you think is true? doesn't have to be about the question, just about in general. And I think I would go from there. Like, like, I think that if they were to say stuff like, well, I think that Jesus really loves me and really loves everybody. And I think that God is present when we suffer. And I think that the Bible um, is, is true all the time. And I think that, you know, this is just stuff that I think maybe an average, um, generally devoted lay Christian would say, right? Like somebody who takes their faith seriously, somebody um, who, who, you know, has been formed for a long time, I think would say things like this. Sure. Right? And, um, and then from those commitments, I then think you can have like real conversations about the dilemma. Okay, how does Jesus's love of all people fit into this question about hell, right? Like, I don't necessarily think that we need to, like, guide them through David Bentley Hart's universal salvation argument, right? Sure. Right? Like, maybe if they want to, you know, I'm more than happy to. But, like, I think that you can just ask, you know, because I think in, in a case like this, what they're also asking for is, like, space to work it out. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. You know, and so on one hand, yes, I think an authority figure in their life, giving them permission to have a belief that maybe their friends do not have is a really important thing. Also, I think what is equally as important is an authority or spiritual figure uh, saying to them, um, well, let's uh, let's map it all out. Let's think about it, because maybe it's not so simple. Or maybe, maybe you have a sense of what you think the answer is, but you just need that space to like say it and, and, and work it out. I think that anybody who hopes that God will not damn a person already believes that God will not damn that person. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, because why would we hope that God would behave better? you know, then uh, maybe we're afraid God won't behave, right? Like, like that's why I think, so Hans Urs von Balthasar wrote a book like that, like where he, are all men saved? Like it was like that, that was like the title. And his conclusion was, I hope so, but I just don't know. And David Bentley Hart, you know, reviewed it once and he was just like, he was just like, Hans Urs von Balthasar is so brilliant. He's such a world-class theologian or was such a world-class theologian before he died. He, his, his work should be read by everybody. It's really great. And this book is fucking lousy. <laughs> because Hans Urs von Balthasar is too smart for this. He knows that if he wishes that God would behave towards what he sees as the highest good, he already believes that God is going to do that. Yeah. He knows that if God doesn't do that, he would be disappointed. How do you arrive at the kingdom of heaven and go, ah, oh, shit? Right, right. Then that is not the good place, right? Then yeah. that's not the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. yeah. Um, hey, uh, a side thing that is very connected to this. Um, John, in the book by John Caputo that I just finished up, Caputo uh, takes a moment to talk about um, uh, Tillich and what Tillich calls the Protestant principle. Okay. Um, and Tillich's Protestant principle is everything is reformable. That's the first thing. That's why he calls it the Protestant principle. Every concept is reformable. Okay. 
And, and when he says, all what that means is everything is subject to the critique of idols. Ooh, okay. Um, and Caputo says, all what this all means is properly good Christian theology and ministry and ethics and talk is always attempting to smash false gods. And then Caputo goes on to say, actually, Karl Marx tells us, Karl Marx, you know, it's Marx, the founder of critical philosophy, as well as, uh, you know, Marxism. Like Karl Marx tells us that the first uh, order of critique, the very first thing, the basis of all critique is the critique of religion. And he says that if you can deconstruct and critique religion, you have done critique in general. All other critiques follow from the critique of religion. Hmm. And and Caputo says, I love Karl Marx. I think he's right about everything. And he is 100% wrong about this. Because in the West, the dawn of all critique is the Hebraic critique of idols. Hmm. Every other, all other forms of critique are simply paying homage to the critique of idols. Every critique is a critique against false ultimacy. It's a critique that says, you are not God. This is not God. This idea is not God. There must be something more ultimate than this. And I think, I think he is totally right. I'm 100% convinced by this. What are we doing when we critique the United States government except for saying, you are not the ultimate arbiter of our lives? Man, you are. Yeah, absolutely. That is correct. <laughs> what are we doing when we, when we make such a banal critique like, like Star Wars Episode Seven is bad, right? Like, like it's the same thing even then. Sure. Star Wars Episode Seven is not good is still just a shadowy version of Baal is not Yahweh. Man, yeah. Huh, gosh. And that like the most profound internal critique is I am not God, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And and I think Caputo's so correct about this. He's like, by the way, this isn't that this doesn't mean that everybody is secretly a believer in God. It, it's it's Every atheist and secular critique is just that as well. What is an atheist doing yeah. but not trying to smash the idols? Absolutely. Yeah, 100% exactly. Man, cheat code unlocked again. <laughs> that really makes total cool. sense. Um, and I, I bring that up because it's great, but it's, it's connected to this conversation about ethics. I think that like in the scenario that you've, that we've brought forward and like, how we think through this stuff. Like, I think that that's a live option as well. Like this critique of idols business, like maybe that is what's happening when we like walk a congregation through these things. Because the, the question of like, is a queer person going to hell is a question about a system, right? Like it's a question about like, so here are the rules. Are the rules ultimate? Yes. Yeah. Is, that is, is absolutely the question. It's really the question. And, and I think um, I think a good Christian minister is always engaged in the Protestant principle hmm. and is always helping us, helping ourselves and, and our congregations smash idols and critique them. Is the, is the system, is the system of hell and heaven, is that ultimate? And I think like what's what's happening in like the universal salvation debate is really that is is to say, mm, I don't think this is ultimate. I don't think mm. it's ultimate for a lot of reasons. I don't think it's ultimate because I don't think it's pointing to the truly true God. I don't think it's ultimate because I don't think it points to the truly true experience of being human. I don't think it's ultimate because it sounds a lot like the American prison system. <laughs> Listen, Ooh, you know yes. what I mean? Like, like, uh -huh. and, and by definition, the American anything cannot be ultimate. Yeah. Yeah. 
despite the fact that like i think we secretly think it is like again that's a fundamental critique the united states is it is another false idol yeah yeah exactly and so i think that um that I think can be really helpful. Like that might be the way I would try to help people think ethically, like in a situation like that, where not only would I ask them about their commitments, but I would want to try to see how their commitments fit into this like question about ultimacy and this question about like the critique of idols is how we have been formed. Because this is what, this is a really easy thing about Christianity in Christianity. Uh, and this is why, like, somebody like Tillich rejects, like, theisms, right? Like, Tillich rejects theisms and Caputo rejects theisms because theisms are constructions. And by definition, constructions are not ultimate. <laughs> and, right. And, and so they must be idols. And so the construction of heaven and hell, it's not that, like, universal salvation isn't a construction, too. That's not what I'm saying. But like it could, but for for Tillich, if I could borrow Tillich for a second, constructions can be good when they are symbols of the ultimate. Okay. And so, does 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 Tillich believe that the Trinity is real? Tillich would say, "I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that. What I do believe is that the Trinity is an authentic symbol of the ground of being." Um. That it that it's a symbol that is alive. It's alive with the power of that which it symbolizes, and it can draw us into more fundamentally deeper and true realities. That without that symbol, we would not be able to read. You know, mm. in the way in which we read symbols, right? Like the so the Trinity, insofar as that it is a Trinity that participates in the power of the ground of being in which it symbolizes is a true symbol of God, but it's not necessarily the same as God. Fertilic. I might have disagreements on that and I do have disagreements on that, but like that would be like an example, maybe another example of like how we can talk about these constructions. Does the system of heaven and hell truly symbolize the ultimate? That's a question that a Christian can answer if they are formed well as Christians, right? If they're formed well as Christians, somebody can say, a Christian can say, well, I'm not sure it does because it does not seem to symbolize well John 3.16. The things we say are true about God and Christ and God's purposes. It does not seem to symbolize those things well. It might symbolize very well the logic of punishment and reward. Sure. Tillich was a major influence on James Cone. And James Cone said one of the reasons why James Cone is able to say that the God worshipped by white people is an idol is because Cone says it is a symbol that participates in the power of whiteness, Mm -hmm. not the ultimate, not the ground of existence, not the ground of being. It is a sim- It does not participate in that power. Therefore, it is a symbol that is alive with the power of whiteness and white supremacy. That's what the white God represents. Hmm. Whereas the black God for Cone is able to participate in the power of the ground of being. And is therefore a real and living symbol of the divine. And we are able uh, to trust it. Now, if the black God were to ever stop participating in the power of the ground of being, like if it, if it as a symbol fails to symbolize the ground of being, then it's very different. And, and, and Cone, if you know, might say of somebody like a Ben Carson, you know, whatever God Ben Carson believes in. This might be what Cone would say, is definitely not the black God. But insofar that it is the black God, Ben Carson's black God does not participate in the power of the ground of being. This this is I'm invoking Cone. He's not here. I understand. But like I'm just trying to invoke the principle, right? 
And so I think there's a, I think, I think that might be a way we can kind of walk through it ethically. The problem, but remember the problem to me, like the scenario you brought forward, isn't really an ethical scenario. Now, from my perspective, now, now if she instead asked something like, uh, how should I treat my queer family member who I do believe is going to hell? Oh, yeah. That and maybe maybe that's a fundamental part of the thinking about things ethically. Maybe that's the first question to ask is like, are you asking me how you treat another human being and the systems about how we treat one another? Or are you asking me to talk about ultimate reality? Like, are you asking me to answer a theologic, essentially a theological question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that we need to determine that at the outset. What do you yeah. think about all of this? Is is, is this like, I, I feel like I'm fighting for my life a little bit, like I'm riffing. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> to be continued. What the Hell is a Pastor is hosted by Ethan Shear and Joe Schoenwolf and produced by Joe Schoenwolf. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Ian Uriola and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. Rate, review, and subscribe to us on the podcasting app of your choice. Find us across the social internet at WTHIAP. And visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon merch, playlists, and more. A special thanks to our Patreon subscribers, Nick, Justin, Matt, Teddy, Paul, Grace, Sam, Jory, Tara, Rachel, Abby, Peter, the Reverends Langenstein, Annalise, Ian, and Ethan. Your money helps make this show happen. Yes, it does. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, duty. <laughs> it's never not funny to me. It is funny.